So far in this series, we've discussed some of the cutting edge technologies being developed in the life sciences. In today's episode, we turn our attention towards the patients who stand to benefit from these medical breakthroughs and how to ensure that those in need don't miss out. For a patient undergoing therapy, clinical trials are the bedrock upon which they build their trust in medicine. Only once a medicine has been shown to be effective and safe in trials can it then be released to the general public. But how well does this approach hold up in reality? For example, throughout almost all of medical history, it was assumed that the average white male response to drug trials could be extrapolated to all potential recipients in a straightforward manner. But when we look at the poorer health outcomes for women and minorities, could the underlying assumptions in medical research be a contributing factor? And as demonstrated by the COVID vaccination drive, even today, we still risk being unable to equitably share the benefits of new therapies to all those who need them. There is hope, however, that the emergence of individualized therapies will help reduce the barriers for entry and bring treatments to those who otherwise may have slipped through the cracks. What has caused these gaps in health outcomes and what is being done to solve them? Join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug into Invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, how can a focus on the individual improve health outcomes for marginalized groups? Women make up over half of the population, and yet if you look at the composition of clinical trial study groups, it doesn't appear that way. There's been a chronic underrepresentation of females in medical research, and I wanted to know how more balanced clinical trials could benefit women's health. To find out, I spoke with Diana Torgerson, Executive Director for External Innovation and Emerging Science at Organon, a pharmaceutical company focused on women's health. So could you tell the audience a little bit about the impact of gender bias on, on well, let's start on clinical research. Yeah. So I think I think it, you have to be aware that women were excluded from clinical trials until the 1990s. So when you don't have data, you don't know what you're what you're missing out on. So they're completely blind, the researchers. <laughs> completely. And what you notice also is that so the way you develop a drug is you go first into some petri dish. So you use cells that could be animal cells or human cells. Then you go into animals to make sure it's safe and efficacious. And then you take it into humans. So there is a whole pipeline before you actually go into clinical trials, what we're talking about today. And it turns out that the cells that were used and the mice that were used were also not reflective of the population out there, which is 50% women. So you couldn't tell it by the mice you were using that there might be a difference, you know, between the genders and you couldn't tell it in the petri dish eater. But when you do look, actually, when you do put 50-50 mice, you do actually start seeing those differences. It's just, this was, we were completely blinded to this. So there was some safety concerns initially that were, you know, we didn't want to put drugs into women because of pregnancy and, and, you know, all of that, all of those safety concerns were sort of well meant. But the fact that we weren't using animals 
uh, 50, you know, 50 to 50 is also a bit problematic. And only in 2016 did NIH mandate that you report sex as a biological variable. And they're demanded that anybody who gets a grant from NIH reports, uses female mice and reports data on sex, the differences between sex. So this is, we're really nascent now that we're, that we're acquiring this data. And what, what sort of differences do you see then uh, now that we're acquiring it? I mean, one thing that we know is that women are not men. So one th- thing that's for certain is that women uh, metabolize drugs differently. So it's something we call pharmacokinetic properties. You know, you swallow a pill and the drug is released into the bloodstream. That happens at a different rate between men and women. So, and it's not only dependent on body weight. Sometimes, you know, it's compensated by body weight, but it turns out when we started looking at it and FDA did a lot of work and published a lot of work in 2015 and 16 on this, it's not the same. And it's not only because of the body size difference. So there's something else at work as well on top of that. Yes. Yes, women just are different, you know, they have a different metabolic rate, they do it differently, etc. But we also see that diseases are actually displayed differently. They're actually not the same disease in, in a man and a woman. So you get a heart attack, I get a heart attack. Our chronic development of, of disease after that is different. Okay, so, so um, it's the impact on the body can be quite different depending on whether, you, whether you're male or female. Yes. Diseases are just displayed differently dependent on sex. And drugs that we take for those diseases and symptoms are metabolized differently. There's a lot of variation. And it's kind of, as a scientist, it's super exciting to look at this, right? There's so much you can learn. I do want to give credit to FDA, for example. They have been trying to change this, for, for example, for CBD, so cardiovascular diseases. For over 20 years, they've been lobbying for equal representation in, in clinical trials and especially focusing on cardiovascular diseases because this is the biggest killer of women. There are various reasons that we can, you know, cite. I mean, you know, one is that initially there was a safety concern of having women in clinical trials. You know, there's various things, but I do sort of want to cut to the chase. And I think it's just been pure bias in medicine. For a really long time, the male body has been the standard and it's just been perpetuated. And I think it's also what we're doing here. It's spreading awareness education. Not a lot of people know this. If you ask any medical student and you point out that the anatomy picture they're looking at is a male body and not a female body, they just haven't paid attention to it. They just don't know. They just really haven't questioned that. And this gets perpetuated, and and we we need to do more of what we're doing here is educate and 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 send awareness out. It's crazy, and and I I agree. It's not widely spoken about it. You don't notice about it, and then suddenly you hear something. You're like, oh wow, that that's just crazy. But um, drug discovery should be a scientific, rigorous process. How can it be biased? Um, how how does that manifest itself? It's really a good question, but this is a larger question of diversity and inclusion and representation, right? Because there were no women in that room to actually say, hey, wait a second. You know, we talk about women's health being niche. How is it possible that it's niche unless your your main focus is the male body and the male, you know, how a male displays diseases, then what's not male becomes niche. But when you look at it, it's like 50%. That can't possibly be niche. And when you look at the numbers of some of these indications that are specific to women, such as PCOS or endometriosis. Bottom line, it comes down to diversity and inclusion um, and representation at the table. As Diana points out, 
not enough attention has been paid to the differences between men and women in how they present with disease and how their responses to treatment might differ. It's a good example of how lack of diversity amongst decision makers can create blind spots and in this case have a tangible impact on health outcomes. So, if a lack of representation of women and minority groups in clinical trials is holding back medical progress, what's being done to remedy it? I asked Diana about what approaches she's seen to make clinical trials fit for the 21st century. Have there been innovations in clinical trials that make you optimistic about being able to maybe segment via via uh, gender um for, you know you hear a lot about personalized medicine for example you know it's it's up for every company to decide how they run their clinical trials so it's so it's you know fda can only ask that much it really comes down back to how these companies are run who and who the decision makers are just anecdotally, when I when I looked at lupus or autoimmune diseases, I had a colleague who had been, you know, very senior in a large pharmaceutical company heading up the immunology division. And I asked, you know, why do women have more lupus than men? And what, you know, how can we go through that population to find new targets and new drugs? Because this is how you would think about personalized medicine. You look at the population that is more prevalent or you know, more presented, and then you try to understand how do they differ from from the rest. And I said, you know, has anybody looked like why do women have what 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 are the drivers of these sex differences? And he said, for all the years that I worked as a you know head of R and D, et cetera, nobody's asked that question. He thought it, I was being extremely innovative by asking that question. I thought that was scary. I think it's just as simple as that. Nobody ever asked these questions. Nobody's looked at the actual patient population in a lot of these diseases when we come outside of oncology. I don't have a better answer than that. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just, it's just um, yeah, the mind boggles. <laughs> yes, yes. Especially as a scientist, right? We, we think we're so good at being data-driven. How, 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 yeah, and, um, and it's, I think I've read, um, it's particularly in neurodegenerative diseases as well, um, it has a higher incidence in women. Is that right? That's right. Alzheimer's technically is um, two out of three patients is a, is a woman. So, so hopefully we might see studies where you look at um, female Alzheimer's sufferers, right? That's right. And there's an institute actually in Switzerland that is particularly looking at that. They're they're focusing on why is the brain different in in women than in men, and it, it's widely different. And there's just so much, so, so much. There's all of these systems that are wildly different. The immune system, completely different. And considering women also go through pregnancy and all of these hormonal changes, I guess that's been one reason for excluding women because it's too complex. A menopausal woman is not the same as a, as a, you know, teenage girl and, and just anything in between there. But what's really interesting as well is that we have focused a lot on the hormonal axis. So we know a lot about the hormonal axis and we use it all the time. It's kind of the nail that when you have a hammer, so you have estrogen and you kind of chuck it at everything. And it, and it has worked. It's been the low hanging fruit. So it's, so it's good, right? But a lot of these things have just stopped there. We define all the sex differences by sex hormones. But we're starting to see that now, just like that example with lupus, that target that he found, the researcher that was looking at the difference between uh, women and men, is actually not sex hormone dependent. So there's a, there's a different layer now, yeah. 
So we, we haven't even started to look at sex differences that are separate from sex hormones. That is our whole field. It seems shocking that something as fundamental as female biology isn't considered more when undertaking drug discovery and development. And so, it's perhaps not surprising that we haven't seen as many treatment options being offered to women either. Just imagine how many women could benefit from being put in the centre of clinical research. So, how can we address the issue of bias in medical research? And where can we turn to for guidance? To find out, I spoke with Shirin Haidari, president of Gendro, a not-for-profit advancing sex and gender equity in research. What can medical researchers do to make sure that their research is conducted in a more, a less biased, more inclusive manner? So um, at the time when we developed the guidelines, we kind of went for the low-hanging fruits. Uh, I was an editor-in-chief by that time, so it felt like I can enforce that in my own journal. Our focus was at that point more on the reporting because we also recognized that many people actually collect the data on sex and gender. It's just that they're not paying attention to it. They don't report it. They don't analyze it. So we thought that, you know, trying to put that pressure from the academic publishing and editorial side, and we all know that researchers always want to publish, they do, as editors say, uh, we thought it would be really important to at least improve the completeness uh, and transparency of the data and also allow for retrospective gender analysis or pooled and meta-analysis. So that could actually be improved. But again, the same principles... uh, really applies to the research design and conduct as well, uh, and also evaluation of research proposal and research funding agencies. We are also having conversations to apply the same principle in the evaluation of research protocols by research ethics committees. So the principles are more or less the same across. Uh, So hopefully that will also have a trickle down to all the other gatekeeping functions in research. Sure, sure. Well, that, that, that sounds like we should be able to see the impact of that um, o- over the coming years. And I think thinking about that issue where there's, there's uh, ethical considerations around women of a childbearing age being included in clinical trials, is there anything that we can do about that or are there any moves there that, uh, that would allow that to happen? Yes, absolutely. I think we have really moved past that. Uh, there is definitely push for better representation of women in clinical trials, as well as actually a great number of efforts trying to highlight the importance of having clinical trials for pregnant women. It's just that pregnant women don't stop being sick when they're pregnant. (laughs) But the problem is that they're often not having access to safe, reliable kind of interventions. And you can see that very clearly with the COVID-19 vaccine, which kind of uh, having the safety and efficacy data in pregnant women was really delayed. And we also knew that pregnant women were at greater risk. So uh, there is some really important efforts trying to um, highlight the challenges and finding ways to best do that. that no, that, I mean, that's, yeah, I have, I have some friends who um, I think, I think uh, she didn't, she couldn't really leave the house while she was pregnant because, uh, because of the, uh, the risk of uh, COVID. Uh, and, not, and not be able to get vaccinated. So yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a blind spot. Yeah, and that goes with a number of other chronic diseases where a lot of women perhaps must interrupt their medication because there is not enough 
evidence whether the medication or treatment they have is safe during pregnancy and so on and so forth. It actually can impact the quality of life substantially for a long period of time. I mean, we are pregnant nine months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not insignificant, no. And breastfeeding as well afterwards. So <laughs> you have to consider <laughs> an important period. So that there is there's a field of there's a field of research now called women's health. Do you think that is uh, a a good thing to have this specific label? Um, does it does it actually spur people to to think about uh, improving health outcomes for women? Well, I think you have to have a two pronged approach. Obviously, there are specific health issues that are specific to women. So there is a the women's health specialty is important and needed. I also think that historically that field has been quite narrowly defined, quite much focused on maternal health and fertility and those issues. And I think it has really improved over the past kind of decades, perhaps more, uh, to really include issues around, you know, gender-based violence, issues around abortion care, contraception, and broader issues. And of course, gynecological cancer, for instance, uh, there has been great advance, uh, advances on that. And on that topic, there is an interesting uh, Lancet Commission on Women and Cancer that really outlines the very comprehensively the broader issues related to women, power and cancer that is coming up in September. But I also believe that it's important to also consider this kind of a sex and gender issues in other areas. You know, women are not only suffering from you know, gynecological or women-specific conditions. They're also, can, you know, colon cancer, I don't know, lung cancer. It's really important to also mainstream these aspects in all the other health areas. That's also important for a quality of science, that you're doing a science that you know if there are particular differences, biological differences, but also perhaps socioeconomical or other differences that can influence susceptibility or vulnerability to disease or manifestation of symptoms, uh, treatment response and uh, diagnosis and so on and so forth. So there's these factors which can impact that person's experience, which which need to be considered within the broader spectrum of, of research on that disease. Absolutely. And I do also believe we should have also men's health area uh, including contraceptives for men, for instance, that has also been a topic that has not been paid attention to or a number of other issues related to men's health as well that are important. So I think there are obviously room for those specific areas, but there also needs to be a more mainstreaming of these across all the areas that we are studying. So, so, so taking a more kind of holistic, inclusive approach could actually improve benefits for everybody, improve the outcomes for everybody, right? Yeah. Absolutely, of course. As Shirin points out, there are signs of progress towards more equity in the conduct of scientific research. For one thing, the designation of women's health as its own discipline helps to lend it legitimacy as a relevant field of study for the researchers of the future. It could also be a catalyst for grant funding and stimulate the building of critical mass around the women's health area. So, given that some progress has been made, is there now reason to feel optimistic? There's certainly a long way to go, so I was curious if Shirin felt positive about the future. I wonder where you might like to be in sort of say 10, 15 years in terms of a best practice for 
avoiding gender bias in, in healthcare research? I tend to believe that we are in, in the right direction. There are a number of great initiatives. There's definitely greater awareness. There's still a lot of work to be done. And also we have to think that usually we are working in our bubble in Europe and perhaps North, Northern countries. And again, I think the issue perhaps could still be present in many other parts of the world. So there is a lot of collaboration. There's also a lot of Africa efforts in other areas, in Latin America, in Asia, in, in Africa. So there are a number of amazing women's advocates and uh, fantastic women scientists that are pushing the boundaries. So I'm optimistic that it would be in a better place. I'm not so sure we must, we may have solved all our issues, but I think we probably would have come half the way, perhaps. Well, that might be a little bit over optimistic, but we will see. <laughs> That's, uh, that, I, I like the optimistic uh, approach and, uh, well, okay. So let me put the other hat on and say, what, what, what kind of things might, what kind of things might slow, slow down progress? Do you think? What, what kind of concerns you? Yes, and now you bring me back to reality. <laughs> and there is a pushback. Yeah, I think there is a definitely, I mean, you have seen the pl political climate, even in European countries and in the US, against some of the women's health issues and women's rights issues. So there is, of course, a backlash. There is a resistance. There is some kind of a risk of that we are going backwards as well. So yes, maybe I shouldn't be over-optimistic, but... <laughs> But I do believe that still, if we are strategic, um, we can navigate these uh, both kind of really pushing back on those forces that try to roll back all these uh, progress that we have made. But at the same time, also introduce a new way of thinking in other areas that are less controversial to really try to change minds and mainstreaming the issues uh, at the at the greater scale, and then hopefully maintaining that. Uh, focus on um, women-specific uh, sexual and reproductive rights uh, and other political uh, uh, rights um, and civil rights. So what, what are the, what are the kind of the, the easier, easier nuts to crack then? Uh, easier not to crack. I mean, I do think that, you know, thinking really about addressing um, or understanding, taking that scientific approach that we really need to have a better understanding of sex and gender differences in health across disciplines, in all areas of diseases uh, or in all areas of, 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 of health is something that I think more or less all the political leaders would hopefully stand behind and people might not have so much uh, to argue against. Uh, I think there is the area that I forgot to mention that are also very important issues around investing in dedicated research. I mean, we have focused a lot on women, but women are also very diverse. We're also including transgender women, for example, or their rights. So I think there needs to also be that dedicated research of understanding different minorities, different groups, uh, people of diverse uh, sexual orientation, gender identities, sex characteristics, that might necessarily always be easy to mainstream, but definitely requires dedicated investment in research, better understanding the complexities and their specific and special health needs, both uh, on a biomedical and biological level, but also at the broader social uh, level in terms of access. Do, do you know of any funds or any uh, particular um, charities or organizations who are looking to, to provide access to that funding? 
Yes, I do believe that um, some of the major funding agents have come up with calls for a specific research project on trans, trans health, for example, transgender health. There has been more focus on that in some specific uh, research organizations. There are a couple of, uh, or there are f- fewer private foundations that also provide uh, more dedicated uh, funding towards research in those communities. So there are some, but it's still very limited. There is definitely much more that needs to be done. And again, my own research focuses on people in forced displacement, and that's also a growing population where the gender issues, the issues of people of diverse sexual orientation and gender identities, and of course, diversities in terms of ethnicity and so on, it's just massive <laughs> and, and and there's that societal thing isn't it because if they become displaced or even end up being um re- refugees uh, or seeking asylum somewhere there's there's uh, kind of that cultural clash sometimes right yeah and also they become a little bit invisible i mean uh, again specifically if they are still in that extended legal limbo which a lot of the refugees and displaced people end up being they're also not included in research so and they're of course having a many different needs and their exposure to risks, uh, including psychosocial health risks and mental health risks and other aspects that can also have impact on physical physical health, like, for example, cancer, among others, are being a little bit overlooked because it's, it's hard to engage that population in mainstream research that we do. So, yeah, I think the issues are many. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think you're going to be busy for many years to come. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure we all will. It's clear that there is plenty of scope to change the lives of millions by providing opportunities to marginalised groups to drive research on issues that affect them. I wondered if any of the trends in advanced therapies might lend themselves to a more individualised approach to medicine's development. And in regenerative medicine, the contribution of the patient's own physiology to the therapy could start to move us away from a one-size-fits-all mentality. To find out about these therapies, I spoke with Diana Moore. Diana has a background in regenerative medicine and is CEO of Move On Therapeutics. So what is regenerative medicine as as a field? Regenerative medicine is the field where you use patients' own cells or extracellular matrix proteins to rebuild tissues and organs that are damaged or not functional anymore. And traditionally, would the alternative have been maybe like a transplant or something like that? Yes. So, so what benefits does that bring for the, for the patient then, uh, if you're able to do uh, kind of self-generated cells? So regenerative medicine brings the advantages that there is no need for a waiting list for a transplant to to get the organ that one needs for survival or for having a better quality of life. But you can take a small sample of the person's own tissue in the autologous way or allogeneic and then to make or rebuild the tissue that is damaged or dysfunctional. So just thinking about what you were saying about 3D printing. So the, the goal is not actually to replace the transplant market completely, but actually you're, you're providing a, a different function here, right? It's, it's, it's true regeneration, right? 
Yes, it is. It is true regeneration. So we are enhancing basically the person's own ability to restore functional tissue formation, and it's um, yeah to restore the function. So it's very kind of a, a personal thing. You're you're even helping yourself. <laughs> yeah, maybe in the long run. And do 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 you see that patients are, I suppose, kind of latch on to that aspect? Um, that they're like, oh, actually, I don't even need to wait for a donor. Uh, I can, I, I can help myself. I think the acceptance rate is uh, pretty high, especially for autologous products, because people are not hesitant to accept what actually belonged to them it was just uh, boosted. I would say. So um, I don't think that there is, there will be a hurdle also in future for accepting personalized regenerative medicine products. So, regenerative medicine has all kinds of benefits. No waiting list for sample donations, tailored treatments, and greater accessibility. Of course, like most new modalities, there are challenges in the speed and cost of manufacturing, but efforts are being made across the industry to address this. Diana has used regenerative medicine to help treat an affliction which has most commonly been felt by women, stress urinary incontinence, or SUI. This is a very real example of the approach delivering the ability to treat a condition that had largely been overlooked by the medical community. Diana explains. The, the work that you're doing is um, different from, from what, what, um, what you might traditionally find in um in uh, thera- therapeutics development so let's let's talk a little bit about um move on and um what benefits does move on have uh for a for an sui sufferer so what we do at move on we help people regain control this we do by restoring the functionality of their skeletal muscle tissue as first indication we chose stress urinary incontinence where By means of tissue engineering, we can rebuild muscle fibers in a very small muscle from the size, being the external urinary sphincter muscle that is holding the bladder closed, and by this, maintaining the function that it needs to have so people don't lose urine unintentionally by laughing, coughing, sneezing, jogging, running. Basically going about their daily lives. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. You mentioned about the size of the, the muscle. What, what are we talking about in terms of uh, volume? So now, nowadays, tissue engineering is limited actually by the volume that one can rebuild using tissue engineering approaches, using cells and biomaterials, because the body needs to be able to re-innervate and revascularize the newly implanted tissues micro tissues, I call them. So there is a very tight timing between the implantation of the tissue and enabling to be be a viable and functional tissue, which we were able to do with our technology. How how do you get the progenitor cells to where they need to be? Is Is it just a kind of a local application? Does it need a surgery? How, how, how do, you, how do you make sure you give them the best chance to, to affect the regeneration? So the, the therapy is done under local anesthesia. 
And this is the plan also how it will be translated to commercially viable levels so that the patient comes in, the biopsy is taken, and actually the biopsy obtainment is the most invasive part of the therapy. And after a couple of weeks, the patient comes in again, and it's a 20 to 30 minutes procedure that they get the cells injected. So it's very minimally invasive. It's a needle that is penetrating the person's body. Okay. Yeah, that, that's how you get the application, um, application of the cells to where they need to be. Exactly. And we put quite a lot of research there, how we enable and ensure that the cells stay there where we are injecting them, as we saw also from other therapies that only a low portion of the cells stayed there really and had this homing effect. And we found a way how to bring them there and that they stay there and do their job where they are needed to be. And I suppose uh, if this goes well, you might look at other indications as well. And, and, and that homing effect is probably a feature that you can incorporate into other therapies as well. Absolutely, yes. This is also in our plan. Given that we can secure more funding, there are a couple of more indications that are also multi-billion opportunities and blockbusters because we are, again, not targeting rare, ultra-rare diseases or diseases that should be real only to ultra-rich people to be afforded. So we want really to be first-line treatment, to really become a standard of care. So we are working towards bringing the price of manufacturing down so that we can then spill over to other disease markets that we have in our pipeline. We've seen today the challenges faced by women and minority groups in getting access to appropriate treatment. As Diana made clear, the status quo doesn't provide sufficient focus on these groups and the impact on health outcomes is clearly unacceptable. This is, in part, a result of the conscious and unconscious biases of the medical research community, where we saw that for many years there was an underrepresentation of women in clinical trial study groups. Part of this was down to supply and demand. More males tend to volunteer for clinical trials than women. But also ethics. The risk of harming the unborn child meant that researchers avoided selecting women of childbearing age for trials. All the same, this position has stifled drug development targeted specifically for women and needs to be re-examined. As Shirin highlighted, the introduction of the women's health discipline helps legitimize the struggle and will attract future talent. And the work of Diana demonstrates that targeting women first in advanced therapies for regenerative medicine can have a significant impact on a large, previously overlooked patient population. These three advocates for women's health have shown us new ways to progress the field of medicine and improve health outcomes, which will ultimately benefit us all. That's all for today. It's been a pleasure to talk about this important topic with Diana, Shirin and Diana. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>